Thank you. Good morning. One, I want to publicly thank um, Darren for taking the previous chapter, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. I thought that was awesome that he took that chapter. Let me introduce myself. My name is Tim Mulehoff. I'm a professor of communication at Biola University. Been a, a part of this church for 10 years, me and my wife. It's so great to be able to address you this morning. Um, I'm going to tackle, this may shock you being a communications professor, but I'm going to tackle this morning's passage from a communication perspective, okay? And I'm going to do it wearing an N95 mask that absolutely fogs up my glasses. So I was speaking at something called the After Dark at Biola University. It's one of the most popular chapels, but it is dark. I mean, the lights are blinding, and I was really going at it in chapel. And my wife, I was right on the edge and didn't realize it. My glasses were falling, <laughs> and my wife was like, you're going to step right off the stage, which I did do one time at a conference. That was embarrassing. I was going along really great, and then it was like, you were there, you were not there, and I just fell right off the stage. That was awesome. I, I hope you do what I do. I love the fact that our church gives us the ability to take notes. I love the fact that we can... Listen to Darren, Jeff, other people talk about certain passages and write our thoughts. I want to read to you some thoughts from Darren on November 28th. He was preaching on the treaty between Abraham and Abimelech. And these are the, now this is my paraphrase of him, so I want to be careful as I was writing it down as he was speaking. This is what he said. We are all ambassadors of Jesus Christ and people are watching us. People are forming an opinion of God. We need to be aware of this. A key part of our church is creating a godly reputation. Sadly, there's been much damage to the image of Christ today. We need to restore Christ's image. And then he said this. The most important thing for our church in the next decade is that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ concerned about his reputation. And then he said... Tim Mielhoff's an amazing contribution to this church. That's what I heard, and I just wrote it down. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that's true? Do you believe that we're ambassadors for Jesus? Do we believe that when we leave this auditorium, we don't just represent ourselves? We represent Jesus Christ. Now, that's good news and bad news. If that's true, then we can add to Jesus' reputation or we can absolutely detract from his reputation. And that's what I want to talk about this morning is this idea of reputation. I teach rhetoric, which is public persuasion. We know from Aristotle that the most persuasive thing about you is your reputation. That, that the, um, how people think about you before you ever open up your mouth is the most important thing about you, according to Aristotle. Now, I'm fascinated how much the scriptures talk about reputation. Take a look at this sampling of what the scriptures say. Uh, First, that's a sharp outfit. Thank you. A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. Look what Ecclesiastes says. A good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume. By the way, do you know what the most expensive perfume in the world is? I actually looked it up. It is something called... um, 
DKNY Golden Delicious perfume. It came into an existence as a result of a collaboration between the famous designer DKNY and the popular jeweler Martin Katz. It cost $1 million for three ounces. My wife loved it. Um, I think it's interesting what Paul will say about the requirements for an elder. He must have a good reputation with outsiders. Isn't that interesting? Not only with us, I mean, that's a given, but also outsiders would look at this leader and would think good things. Then notice what he says at the bottom, so that you not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Men and women, today we live in the argument culture. That's a phrase developed by Deborah Tannen, a Georgetown linguist. We approach each other as if everything's a verbal fight. Um, And social media has certainly added to that. So what do we do today if we're Christian communicators? What do we do today if our job is to represent what Jesus says, but in a culture that is deeply fragmented? The problem today is we don't talk to each other. The two political parties don't talk to each other. The pro-vaccination, anti-vaccination crowd does not talk to each other. If they do, it tends to be via social media, and it's harsh and ugly. So we have become fractured today. If our country is going to make it, we have got to find a way to talk past our differences. We've got to find a way to create our reputation while protecting the reputation of other people, even in the midst of our disagreements. That's what we're going to take a look at today. The importance of reputation and then how Abraham is able to talk to the Canaanites, a group of people that later the armies of Israel will wage war against, and yet he still shows them respect and is still able to uh, negotiate with them. Now, how important is reputation? Let me show you an odd photo. Yes, that's a chocolate eclair. Those of us who study communication are all aware of what is simply called the chocolate eclair study. It is a brilliant study. Here's the study. A communication scholar wrote a totally bogus scientific paper. In the paper, he argued that eating chocolate eclairs, there was something within the chocolate eclair, he made up a term, that actually causes you to lose weight. So if you eat an eclair a day you actually would drop pounds. Now, here's the beauty of the study. Obviously, if somebody told you about the Eclair study, you would laugh at it. You'd laugh at it. You'd say, that's just utterly ridiculous. But here's the beauty of the study. All he did was tell you who um, supported the study and to see what your reaction was. So imagine, he says to you, if you eat Eclairs, you'll drop weight. And you go, that's, that's ridiculous. Well, it's coming out of Eastern Michigan University. That's where I graduated from. You would still laugh at it, right? Ohio University, still laugh at it. Now, what was interesting is, when would you stop laughing? What institution had enough credibility that would actually get you to think about a totally bogus study? You know what the number one school was? He found out? Biola University. No, I'm kidding. I just... My president attends this church, and I'm hoping he's watching right now. No, you know what was number one on the list? MIT. If I say to you, hey, did you hear about the Eclair study? You're going to laugh. But I say, hey, but it's coming out of the scholars of MIT. People literally went, 
Really? Right? That's called the Eclair study. The power of reputation. And we're going to see it in action when we look at this chapter. So let me set up the chapter for us. Right? Next slide. Sarah has... Oh, I'm sorry. My bad. I jumped. So we could ask a very interesting question. What's the reputation of Christians? If we walk out of here and sit down with the person and say, I'm a conservative Christian, what kind of damage or what kind of benefit would you get from telling people that you're a conservative Christian? Fortunately, we've studied this a lot. Thank goodness for groups like the Barna Research, Pew Research, has researched average Americans' opinions of conservative Christians. Listen to this. In one study... 66% of respondents aged 23 to 30 stated they stopped attending church altogether. Men and women, do you know we're experiencing a crisis today in evangelicalism? For every one person who converts, four deconvert. For every one person we gain, four leave Christianity. Now why? This is what the study is getting at. Rank as their number one reason why they stopped going to church, people said, because Christians are divisive and judgmental, just like everybody else. Such an uncompassionate stance keeps many from even considering Christianity. In an often cited study, 2007 study, the Barna Group discovered that non-Christians, 16 to 29, overwhelmingly view Jesus follows as judgmental, which they define as you easily dismiss the opinion of anyone who disagrees with you. You don't really consider it, you just dismiss it. Now that was in 2007, but the president of Barna, David Kinnaman, says future research has shown that that perception is still alive today as much as it was in 2007. Relevant Magazine, one of the top magazines that Christian youth read, said this, The biggest way we misuse our faith is to assume that our biblical convictions give us the right to judge others without first listening to their views. The reason people don't consider Christianity or stop attending churches, we are not different than anyone else. The way we talk about uh, the political figure we don't like is just like everybody else. The amount of disrespect shown to the other political party is Christians jump in just like everybody else. When it comes to the vaccination issue, Christians are just as split, just as divisive, and just as ugly as everybody else. I'm part of the Winsome Conviction Project at Biola University, a five-year project trying to reinstitute civility, compassion into our public disagreements. Let me just say, business is really good, okay? And we are, we are working with churches that are splitting apart. We're working with parachurch organizations that are splitting apart. Biola University, we're not exempt from this. We have faculty who strongly disagree with each other. And it is straining our university just like it's straining other Christian uh, communities. Non-Christians look at us and say, why would I consider you guys? You are literally like everybody else. The way you use social media is just like everybody else. Well, we need to really consider what our reputation is and how can we change it. What we're about to see in Genesis 23 is how Abraham's reputation allows him to barter with the Canaanites 
and achieve what he wants to achieve. So let's set up the passage real quick. Sarah dies and Abraham chooses to bury her in Canaanite territory. This is the promised land that will eventually be given to Abraham, but it will entail war to get it. And that war will be against primarily the Canaanites, right? So he's talking to a culture that is not pro-God. We know this next. Um, Next one, thanks. The Bible gives an unflinching assessment of Canaanite culture where in Leviticus 18, this will be written roughly 600 years after Genesis, we learn that the land is defiled with every kind of abomination, including temple prostitution, bestiality, child sacrifice, and worshiping of false gods. This is not a godly group. Now, we know that they would become even more ungodly. We don't know exactly where they were at when... Abraham's interacting with the Canaanites, but we know the seeds are there, that this will become an incredibly ungodly nation that the armies of Israel have to fight against. That's who he's bartering with. And then last, the entire negotiation is done at the gate of the city with an audience watching. So he is interacting with their leaders and everybody's watching how Abraham's going to treat their leaders in this negotiation. Now, as we read through this passage, I think there's some application points that we can take uh, as we seek to influence people as Christ's ambassadors. So, setting the stage. The entire negotiation is done... Oh, I'm sorry, next. Abraham's reputation precedes him. Look at what they say in verse 6. Hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince among us. That's what they say to Abraham. By the way, some translations read, you are a mighty prince of God among us. Now, how in the world do they know Abraham? Well, what's interesting is go to Genesis 13, 18. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So he's being watched when he comes in. And his reputation is one that he's a mighty prince, maybe even a mighty prince of God. They are watching him, and it was that reputation that allowed him to barter with them. So application-wise, we could say this. What's your reputation walking into a room? When you walk into a room, what's the reaction from people? Like, oh, stay away from politics. Do not talk to him about politics. Or, don't talk to her about vaccinations. Woo! It will not be pretty. I love the fact that our church talks about circles of influence. I think that's a brilliant idea. We all have circles of influence. But those circles of influence have been impacted by your reputation. You walk into that room, people, uh, it could be good, bad, indifferent, and no doubt that reputation is different in different circles of influence, right? I'm a father, a husband, a community member in Brea. I teach at Biola University. My reputation precedes me every time I walk into a room. Now, what's interesting about us, next bullet point, is you don't just represent yourself. How would you change how you act if you were introduced as God's representative? It's interesting. My computer bag has Biola University engraved on it. So when I get on a plane and a person looks at my bag, most people don't know Biola University. But when they do, some of them do, and they're like, oh, you teach at Biola University, or you go to Biola University. I'm like, yeah, I'm a professor there. Now they're watching me. 
When Noreen and I speak at marriage conferences, you better believe they're watching us over lunch, right? So what, how would you change if people introduced you walking into the room as now entering Christ's ambassador and you walk into the room? I was speaking at a men's retreat one time. I was the Bible teacher. And in the afternoon, Saturday afternoon, they invited me to go play basketball. So I said, sure. So I got dressed to go play basketball. As I'm walking into the gym, an elderly man grabs me wisely and says to me, brother, do not forget, you were teaching God's word this morning. I was like, wow, that's really good. So I decided not to dunk on him. So that was just my decision not to embarrass them. But right, that's huge. Tim, don't forget, you're teaching God's word. You taught it in the morning. You're going to be teaching it in the evening. Don't act crazy on that basketball court. Don't ruin your reputation. So I think it'd be really good for us this week to find out what our reputation is. Now, here's the interesting thing. We have a, I have a colleague, Dr. Greg Tenelsoff. He attends his church. He wrote a brilliant book on self-deception. See, many of us honestly don't know what our reputations are. We might think they're really good when in fact they're not really good. So what do you do? Go ask people. Wouldn't it be interesting to sit down with your spouse? Say, hey, what's my reputation among your in-laws? Or what's my reputation with the kids when we talk about this? Uh, what's my reputation at work? Go ask a coworker. Oh, that's hard to do. Yeah, I did a really stupid thing once. Can I tell you this? I was at a family life marriage conference. My wife and I have been speaking at them for years. And um, a speaker got up and really motivated me with a dumb idea. You ever do that? He, he said something that sounded really good. Turns out just a horrible idea. Here was the idea. Dads, go home and ask your kids what's one thing they would change about you. And I thought, okay, this is a great idea. I come home, my three boys. I said, hey, what's one thing you change about dad? Three hands immediately go up in the air. I was like, hey, do you need time to think about it? Pray about it. Nope, got mine. Boosh. And I was like, what? I go, okay, what would you change about dad? All three of them. You get really angry sometimes. I was like, what? Noreen was in the kitchen. I said, we're doing mom next. And Noreen's like, no, no, we're not doing mom next. Isn't that interesting? You may not know what your reputation is. It'd be really good to ask some people and and be a teachable moment, myself included. Next. This is interesting. He went to them. Notice what the passage says, verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham, in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even all who went in at the gate of the city, he went to them. He didn't ask them to come to him. Men and women, what's making our country so difficult today is we're all separated. They call it tribalism. We all have our different tribes, and the tribes do not talk to each other. So when it comes to pick whatever issue you want, there is no communication happening between groups. We could, use, we could use vaccinations as a test case. The two groups do not talk to each other. They throw uh, rhetorical bombs at each other via social media. The race discussion in America is not happening in a productive way. 
Camps do not talk to each other. And we don't even need to talk about politics because we all know how politics get played out in this country. The question we need to ask is, are we going to people to have conversations? Are we expecting them to come to us? So I love this idea of circles of influence. But if you look at your circles of influence and it doesn't include any non-Christians then based on what Chuck Swindoll, right, one of the great founders of this church, said, if you don't know at least six non-Christians, you're out of touch. So where are your circles of influence? We can't expect them to come through the doors of this church. We have to be present in the community. So I do martial arts. Uh, I I did kung fu for years. Now I'm doing Krav Maga. One of my Krav Maga friends came to the first service, Christian. Well, when I go do Krav Maga, I better realize people know who I am. They know I'm a professor at Biola University. So when I go do martial arts, I better know they're forming an opinion of Biola for sure, and they're forming an opinion of Christianity. Is Tim any different than the rest of us in how he talks, acts, and things like that? Well, I need to go there. Now, here's the problem. We love to do separate things as Christians. We love to have our separate um, sports leagues. We love to have separate schools. Listen, I teach at a Christian university. I love my university. But I say to my students at Biola University, you've got to break out of the bubble. You have to find ways of connecting with non-Christians. And if all you do is hang out with Christians, then that's just not what we've been called to. So we've got to find ways of interacting with people. So take a look at this interesting Uh, Op-ed piece that was written by Tish Harrison Warren. Don't quit Twitter yet. You might have a moral duty to stay. See, there is no doubt social media is a, a wasteland. But if we leave, then there is no redeeming element trying to reshape uh, social media. We've got to think long and hard how to do it. And many people are horrible on social media. And quite frankly, some of you need to get off social media because how you're communicating about fellow Christians is just flat out wrong. And it's a horrible message being sent to non-Christians who watch our dialogue with each other. But we can't abandon it altogether. We've got to find a way of being distinctly Christian. So we hosted a conference last year, it was virtual, called Digital Hope. And I would encourage you to look. It's online. It's been posted. We brought together some of the top um, media experts and asked them, how can we be distinctly Christian on social media? But men and women, it it is um, so damaging to Jesus' reputation, the way we speak. It's almost like my Biola students think there's two different sets of rules. Like when I'm talking to a person face-to-face, I know to be charitable, perhaps speak truth and love. But when I go online, it's almost like Mardi Gras. It's almost like while I'm online, I I can ignore everything the Apostle Paul said about being charitable, kind-hearted, brotherly, sympathetic. And what what, um, Peter said, when insulted, I do not want you to insult in return. I want you to bless that person. It's almost like when we're online, we feel like there's a different set of rules. And it's not. One of the most interesting things about Paul is he introduces us to this interesting concept called the judgment seat of Christ. Which means, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to heaven. You cannot uh, exhaust God's love, his grace, or forgiveness. 
But if that's true, Paul introduces something called the judgment seat of Christ, where you will stand in front of your Savior and give an account. Now, one of the things Jesus says you will give an account for is your language. Imagine that. We're going to stand in front of Jesus and have to give an account of how we use our words and were they charitable or not. That's going to be interesting. All of us, that's a motivator to think deeply about the words I do. Book of Proverbs, do you give life or death when you speak to people? Next. Oh, John Stott. I love this about, um, are we going to the gate of the city of other people? John Stott says this. Jesus challenges us to go out in some segment of the world which does not acknowledge him. And there to give ourselves in witness and service for him. Our circles of influence need to include non-Christians. We need to go to where they are. We can't expect them to always come to where we are. Next. All right. Now, if you thought anything I said was controversial up to this point, now we're going to get interesting. To me, the most interesting part of the whole passage was how Abraham treated the Canaanites. Now, we know the Canaanites eventually are going to be enemies of Israel and we're going to wage war against them because they have defiled the land. These are not godly people. But how does Abraham treat people he disagrees with? I think this is fascinating. Notice two things that he does in verse 7, verse 12. So when he's at the gate of the city in front of everybody, it's his turn to speak to the Canaanites. And this is what he does. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people. This is a Near Eastern custom of showing respect to other individuals. He does the same thing in verse 12. Abraham bowed before the people of the land. He disagrees with them, but is still showing them respect. That is the defining hallmark of the argument culture today. The argument culture, if I could pick one aspect that defines it, I do not give you respect. You are not my president. I do not respect your political party. I do not respect your position on vaccinations. I do not respect your theological position. Thus, I don't have to show you respect. That is the argument culture today. Abraham does not do that. By the way, we see a great illustration of this principle in the New Testament. If you read the book of Acts, you know how Paul feels about idols. There's a Greek word he uses that literally means it turns his stomach. It makes him sick to see these idols, right, in Athens. So what does he do when he gets up and gives the great Mars Hill discourse? Uh, It was so great to actually stand there with uh, the adult group that we go to, um, um, uh, Encouragement Inc. A bunch of us went overseas. To the Holy Land, I got a chance to stand right there where Paul was. So he hates idols, hates them. Here's what he says. Men of Athens, your idols are an affront to God and you're an embarrassment. He doesn't say that. Paul says this. Men of Athens, I observe your people of worship. What? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul gets up and he says, listen, men of Athens, I see your idols. It shows me that you want to worship. Now, they really are going to disagree on the object of the worship, but Paul is affirming the desire 
to worship. He, it is what John Gottman, one of our top communication theorists, says, you can have a hard startup or you can have a soft startup. Today's argument culture, it is all about harsh startups. I'm a hockey fan, a Detroit Red Wings hockey fan. By the way, the LA Kings destroyed us last night. That was not fun to watch. But you go and read the comments after an article about the Red Wings. It is pure nastiness and pure harsh startups. People literally calling each other idiots. Hey, idiot, why don't you... That is a harsh startup. Paul didn't do that. Abraham did not do that. Uh, Next slide. I stuck this in here because when you do research, you come across some amazing stories. So in 1960, the key to Khrushchev comes and speaks to the General Assembly of the UN. This is the height of the Cold War. This is when nuclear tensions between us and the Soviet Union were at their height. Remember, this is where he famously takes his shoe off and bangs it on the podium, threatening the United States, saying, you interfere with Soviet Union plans, you will face the nuclear might of the Soviet Union. Very famous speech. Now, Eleanor Roosevelt heard the speech. Her reaction to it was very interesting. She got crucified in the papers for doing this. Her reaction to Nikita Khrushchev was to invite him to tea. You can imagine the response. You invited a man who wants to destroy this country to tea? And she did. Here's was her justification. I thought it was brilliant. This is what she said. We have to face the fact that either all of us are going to die together or we are going to learn to live together. And if we are going to learn to to live together, we have to talk. Men and women, this church will go nowhere if we don't talk. If we just take our differences and push them underground, that is latent conflict and there is no worse form of conflict than latent conflict. It's the conflict you don't talk about, but it poisons everything. We have to move forward uh, as a church talking about really hard things and understanding good, godly people just flat out disagree when it comes to politics, when it comes to race, um, when it comes to uh, vaccinations. We've got to learn to talk to each other. By the way, let me extend that. We will go nowhere as a community if we don't talk to all of the community. What binds us together is we all live in Southern California. And do we want the best for Southern California? We all need to come together where people come together and have conversations. I'm the co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project with Dr. Rick Langer. Uh, Him and his wife Sherry attend this church. We brought in David French, a political um, scholar, Now, he's controversial. He definitely stakes out some positions when it comes to former President Trump. But he makes the argument, we brought him to campus, that is fascinating and disturbing. Do not think our country can't split her apart. Do not think that certain states can secede from the United States, or at least attempt to. We have got to address this as Americans. 
And we're all in this together. This is our country. We've got to know how to talk in respectful ways. And quite frankly, what makes Christian communicators different is I will treat you with respect regardless of how you treat me. What does Paul say? Speak truth, do it in love. Peter says this, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you with all gentleness and reverence. We understand from the book of Proverbs, a harsh word stirs up wrath. Right? So our communication has to be distinctly different in how we voice our disagreements. Now, how do we practice? We practice with each other. And then we step out and then we talk to non-Christians. Already recognizing our reputation as conservative Christians, we're already three steps behind in how people think about us. We have to understand that being a Christian means speaking truth and love. It's not an option to opt out of that. We have to be able to do that. Next. Why? Because from a practical standpoint, there's something we talk about called the rule of reciprocation. It means, generally speaking, the way I treat you is how you'll treat me. Cornelius Plantiga, one of our top theologians, said this. Like yields like. You get back what you put in. What goes around comes around. No matter what we sow, the law of return applies. Good or evil, love or hate, justice or tyranny, grapes or thorns, a gracious compliment or a peevish complaint, whatever we invest, we tend to get it back with interest. Lovers are loved, haters hated, forgivers usually get forgiven, and those who live by the sword die by the sword. The rule of reciprocation, some communication scholars argue, is what binds human beings together, cross-culturally. My wife and I got a chance to experience this. We lived in the former Soviet Union for a year, and we were in this hostel uh, uh, where an elderly woman and her husband ran it, but they didn't like foreigners. I thought, that's a really bad career choice, right, to run a hostel. If we were one minute late to dinner, she would close the doors, lock it. We wouldn't get dinner that night at the hostel. She she was a pretty nasty lady. So one day, me and a couple guys were going to go play basketball. We're going to go take the metro. It's snowing like crazy. And as we're walking, we see a Russian car stuck in the snow and an elderly man's trying to push it. Now, if you want to think about a Russian car, take an American smart car and cut it in half. Okay? That is a Russian car. So we walk over. There were three of us. We literally lifted the car. We could lift the car and move it. And then it got out of the snow. A woman pops out of the front seat. It's the woman who owns the hostel. And she's like yelling at us. And we're like, what is it? We, we just helped you. Well, she was actually thanking us. Next morning we show up. There were flowers in every one of our rooms. And it did not matter how late we were to dinner. Like we'd show up two hours late, not expecting dinner. She would hear us come in, come out in her bathrobe, open the kitchen, make us dinner. Men and women, it works. Grace, kindness, respect works. And it really works when people watch us being respectful to people who are not being respectful back to us. We have to believe the book of Proverbs is true. Let me close with two thoughts as I run out of time. Next. All right, what if you got a bad reputation? Right? What if you know, oh man, I should have heard this. A year ago. But I got a bad reputation at work. 
or I got a bad reputation at home. Well, can you restore a bad reputation? Here's a really cool thing about the passage that you might miss, but Old Testament scholars have really picked up on it. Notice what is said about Sarah. It opens the chapter. It's this. Now, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. That is the first and last time the actual age is given of a woman. It's never repeated in the Old Testament. Many scholars believe this is the writer, Moses, attempt to bring her honor. And here's what I love about Jeff and Darren's teaching. They don't shy away from the ugly parts of biblical characters. We've all heard Abraham did not always have his A-game. And Sarah uh, did some pretty ugly things. But at the end of her life, her reputation is restored by the biblical writer. So if you have a bad reputation in certain circles of influence, it can be redeemed. Now how... That's a whole nother talk, but it's going to entail going to that person saying, listen, I think I've wronged you, or I think I've been really harsh in how I've communicated with you. Forgive me, and let's find a way of improving our communication climate. Remember what Jesus says? Listen, when you're going to go worship, and you see a brother or a sister, and you know there's something between them, don't go into the house of worship. Go deal with that brother and sister, and maybe that's what we need to do. Last, it's interesting about Jesus. We've been talking about reputation. It's interesting that Jesus gave up his reputation for us. Paul says this, Jesus made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant was made in the likeness of men. Continue to read that passage. He died, but he died as a crucified criminal. Now, the book of Hebrews says, why did he do that? The book of Hebrews says this. For the joy set before him, he despised the shame and pursued us. Do you know what despise means in the Greek? It means to think little of. I have three boys. If, you, if one of them was kidnapped and I get a ransom letter that says, hey, it's going to cost uh, $900,000 to get your son back. I'm going to be like, done. Done. I want my son back. Hey, I don't, I don't think you understand what I said. 900,000, done. I want my son back. If it was 2 million, I probably would say, uh, which son, just to be clear, so I can <laughs> pray about it. Um, he didn't care. He gave up his reputation. Do you know one of the earliest attacks of Christianity was when people said Jesus was the Messiah, their response was, wait, the man who died naked on a cross? That's your Messiah? What a joke. We have actually ancient graffiti that has a donkey being crucified. That's what they thought of crucifixion in the Roman world. No Roman could be crucified. It was so barbaric. Only sedition against the state of Rome would get you crucified. But Romans generally believed it was barbaric to crucify a Roman. That's how Jesus died. He set aside his reputation to pursue you. Now, what does he ask in return? In return, don't just think about your reputation. If you're a follower of Jesus, you represent his reputation. So maybe this week, all of us, maybe we need to do just a little bit of inventory. Think of different circles you belong to, family, community, work, school. 
And what's my reputation with certain individuals, bosses, professors? And maybe I need to bring that before the Lord. If you're confused what your reputation is, maybe go ask some people of how you come across. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come before you and we're humbled that you so easily gave up your reputation for each one of us. That you laid down your life. You, the Son of God, experienced death. And Paul reminds us, not just death, but death on a cross. You so eagerly did that to bring us into your family. Now, let us represent that family well. Let us represent you by speaking truth, but doing in love. When insulted, let us not insult, but give a blessing. Let us give a reason for the hope that is in us, but do it with all gentleness and reverence. Thank you for Abraham's example, even with the Canaanites, of how he approached his communication with them. Father, thank you for the grace you bestow upon us. Let us bestow that grace upon other people as we increase your reputation. 